Let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we've sung of your love this morning and we've uh, sung of your glory this morning. And we pray that in these next few moments we would have a fresh uh, apprehension of both. Uh, we would see your glory uh, through the written word and we'd uh, discover more of your uh, love uh, through the, our words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder what your passion is. I wonder what the thing is that you live for. I wonder what the thing is that makes you tick. The thing that you uh, think about in your uh, spare moments. Uh, The thing that you spend uh, your spare cash on. The thing that you uh, dream about. I wonder who uh, the person is in your life who is your passion. The person who you uh, can't stop bringing into uh, every conversation. The person who, when you talk about them, uh, your face uh, lights up. When you hear their name, you take uh, a sudden interest in what's being said. In our letter this morning, we see Paul's passion. He's writing to the church in Philippi, and his letter reveals something of what's going on in the church and something of what is going on in his life. Our passions change throughout our life. I'm sure the things that are important to you now are not the same things that were important to you when you were a teenager. I suspect as you get older, your perspective upon the world uh, changes. There was an article uh, in the press this week about uh, one of the effects of the Olympics. And it's been described as the rise of the mammals. Anybody know what a mammal is? M-A-M-I-L. Middle-aged man in lycra. You might have seen them on their new bikes. You might have seen them jogging down the road. Middle-aged men who have suddenly discovered a passion for cycling, a passion for running. I have to confess to being something of a mammal myself. Paul's passions changed in his life. He was born in the town of Tarsus, uh, in an area which is now known as southern Turkey. At the time he was born, it was a Greek city, a centre of uh, learning and of culture. He was born into a Jewish family. He was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a a really important tribe in the history of that nation. He was born, uh, and he was uh, christened, if you like, uh, Saul, named after one of the kings, the first king, in fact, of the Jewish people. He was proud of his heritage. He had great learning, great culture through his background. He grew up and took on the family business of leatherworking and tent making. He was born just a few years after the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And as a young man, to finish his education, he travelled to Jerusalem and there sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great Jewish rabbis and teachers, a contemporary of Jesus Christ. Those of you who are familiar with Paul's letters, I wonder how many of you have considered the fact that in all likelihood, 
he was in Jerusalem at the same time as Jesus. May even have seen him preaching. Paul's passion was the Jewish faith. We see him in the, uh, the book of Acts, the history of the early church, as a zealous Jewish leader. Somebody determined to stamp out what was viewed at that time as the heretical uh, sect of Christianity. A man who was there when the first leader, one of the first leaders of the church, Stephen, was killed, uh, stoned to death. A man who made it his life's mission to destroy the early church. His passion was to change. And it was to change in a moment. It was to change in an instant. It was to change as a result of an encounter with God. You read the story in Acts chapter 9. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if there were any there who belonged to the way of Christ, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city, and you'll be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ was to have a profound effect upon Saul. It was to be the defining moment of his life. His life was completely changed around from that moment on. He went from being a persecutor of the church to one of its leaders. He went from being a denier of Christ as the Messiah to being his herald. He went from traveling to destroy churches to traveling to start churches. Before, he'd been concerned with the purity of the Jewish faith. Now his concern was that the good news of God would be taken to the non-Jews. His name was changed. He moved from being Saul to being Paul. This encounter with Jesus ignited Paul's passion and changed his perspective. What was Paul's passion? We read of it in this letter to the Philippians. His passion was that the good news of God's love be made known to everyone. This was the thing that he lived for. This was his chief concern. He writes under house arrest, possibly in Rome or in Ephesus. 
He's far from those whom he loves. He's away from his family. He's away from his church. He's no longer able to travel freely around the Roman Empire. You might think that he would be downhearted. You might think that he would be disappointed. You might think that he would uh, question the providence of God. Yet this letter finds him joyful and rejoicing. He rejoices in the fact that this means he has the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with those who hold him captive. It means that the good news of Jesus has come to a place it had no other way of reaching. It means that he has the opportunity to share the Jesus whom he loved with those with whom he is chained. The elite soldiers of the Roman Empire, the hardest to reach with the good news. God has found a way. How did Paul share that good news? We think of Paul as a great letter writer. We think of him as a great preacher. But sometimes he just told his story. In Acts chapter 22, we see him before a mob in Jerusalem. A crowd gathered to take his life. He's given the opportunity to speak to them. And what does he do? He tells them of that day in Damascus where Jesus appeared to him. Later on in Acts chapter 26, he's before King Agrippa, the king of the Jews, a descendant of Herod who had Jesus put to death. Again, he's given the opportunity to speak to him. And what does he do? He shares that moment when he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. It's when you're in extremity that what is most important to you is revealed. It's when you're squeezed that what's inside of you comes out. Squeeze an orange and you find orange juice. Squeeze Paul and you discover Jesus. I think in chains between two Roman soldiers, Paul shared his story. I think he talked about the one who meant more to him than anything else. I think he told them about the Jesus in whom he trusted. I think he talked about how he met him on that dusty road to Damascus. I think he shared with the guards the source of the peace and the joy that he felt. I think he shared Jesus Christ. There's a lesson for us here too. For those of us who would call ourselves Christians. For those of us uh, for whom Jesus is the most important passion in our life. When you are in extremis, when you are in a difficult situation, when you feel squeezed, when you're in a place of need, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. And don't be afraid to show others your vulnerabilities. And don't be afraid to be honest about the one in whom you trust. One of the privileges of being a vicar is visiting folk and often visiting them in times of need. Uh, Many times I've uh, visited members of this church in hospital, 
in sometimes very uh, difficult circumstances. And it's not unusual at all to uh, find a church member in that situation uh, sharing their hope, sharing their peace, sharing their joy with those around them. Sharing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is their hope. Sharing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is their strength. Sharing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is their peace. Sharing how they discovered him and what he means to them. We may not all be great preachers. We may not all be theologians. We may not all be letter writers. But we can all share the hope we have within us. And we can all tell the story of how Jesus Christ found us. Paul's passion is that the good news of Jesus be shared. This letter, too, tells us of his perspective. Your perspective, how you view the world, has a profound effect upon your life and how you see your place within the world. Franklin D. Roosevelt, the American president, had a a little ritual that he used to go through with his uh, friend, uh, a naturalist, uh, William Beebe. They were great friends, and they would meet for uh, supper uh, occasionally. They would eat late uh, into the evening, and then after their meal, they would go out uh, into the gardens. They would look up to the sky, and uh, the naturalist, the scientist, uh, William Beebe, would say this find the uh, square of Pegasus, a constellation in the sky. And he'd say, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It has 100 million galaxies. It's 750,000 light years away. It consists of a billion suns, each one brighter than our own. Then he and Roosevelt would be silent for a moment. And then Roosevelt would say, Now I think we feel small enough. We can go to bed. It's important for us from time to time to remember our place in the universe. To remember, again, that the world doesn't revolve around us. As I keep saying to my children... The world doesn't revolve around you. It's important to have a proper appreciation of our place. It's important to have the right perspective on who we are and where we are. Paul's encounter with the living Christ changed his perspective upon everything. Until that point, he was a successful businessman. After that point... His business is just a means to uh, find money uh, to share the good news. Until that point, he was a proud Roman citizen, a man of honour. After that moment, his citizenship is just a key to travel the Roman Empire, sharing the good news. Before he met Christ, he was a man of learning and culture, a man of many languages, a man who knew uh, Greek history and Greek politics a man familiar with the Jewish faith. After that point, this is a heritage he can draw upon to share his faith in Christ. After this moment, Paul's 
perspective on everything has changed. On minor things and major things. And there's nothing uh, more uh, large looming in the life of all of us than death. And we see that Paul's perspective upon death has changed. He doesn't know how long it will be before he will die, but he suspects that he will soon uh, be executed. And as death approaches, he reveals his perspective upon that event. Is it a tragedy? Is it a loss? Is it a failure of God's love and his mercy and his grace? Or is it something else? Paul writes, To live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain. What a perspective. To die is gain. To live means I can serve Christ, I can honour Christ, but to die is to gain. Why is that? Well, for Paul... To die was to pass through a doorway into the presence of Christ, the Christ who who he'd met on the road to Damascus. Paul's passion and perspective have been changed, turned upside down by the living Christ. One of uh, the leading churchmen of the 70s and 80s was a man called David Watson, a famous evangelist and preacher, um, somebody who led a very large church in uh, York, a man who wrote many, uh, many books. He was known as somebody who had uh, something of a healing ministry, whom God used to bring others to uh, full health and restoration. Uh, in his prime of life, he contracted uh, cancer. And he wrote a book uh, of his experience of uh, wrestling with cancer and the effect that it had upon his faith. He called the book uh, Fear No Evil. Uh, It's a great book to read. It's uh, challenging and encouraging in equal measures. Uh, David Watson uh, died, and he died soon after he finished this book, and he died as a result of the cancer that he had. And he writes of how his perspective upon life and death have changed as a result of his faith in Christ. This is from the final chapter of this book. When I die, it's my firm conviction that I shall be more alive than ever, experiencing the full reality of all that God has prepared for us in Christ. Sometimes I have foretastes of that reality when the sense of God's presence is especially vivid. Although such moments are comparatively rare, they whet my appetite for more. The actual moment of dying is still shrouded in mystery. But as I keep my eyes on Jesus, I am not afraid. For Jesus has already been through death for us and will be with us when we walk through it ourselves. I'm sure David Watson could uh, own the words of the Apostle Paul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I wonder how you feel when you hear these stories. When you hear the story of the Apostle Paul, when you hear the story of David Watson. I hope they challenge you. I hope they encourage you. 
I hope they spur you on to discover more of the person of Christ. I hope they uh, whet your appetite to uh, see what effect he would have upon your passions and how uh, knowing him might change your perspective on life. But there is a danger for any of us when we hear these stories that they have the opposite effect, that they depress us and they discourage us, that the faith that's revealed in men and women like this seems somehow unobtainable, somehow remote. And their experience seems uh, so different to ours when we face uh, difficulties and trials. When we're in hospital, we feel uh, far from uh, sharing our faith. When we face uh, difficulties, uh, we feel uh, far from secure in our trust in God. Watching the Olympics, I was reminded of a story uh, an American preacher tells, a man called uh, Tony Campolo of when he was a young man. He was a keen uh, athlete, and uh, uh, his hero was Roger Bannister, the man who ran the force first uh, uh, sub-four-minute mile. He tells a story in in one of his books of uh, going to see Roger Bannister run and the effect that that had upon him. Find it. Too many papers. He goes with his uh, athletics team from his college. Our entire team was standing, cheering as the world's greatest runners readied themselves for the final event of the meet, the mile run, the 1500 metres. I can remember the excitement as the race got underway. All the runners remained bunched for the first three laps. Then on the last lap, Bannister pulled away from the pack. The crowd went crazy as he picked up the pace and distanced himself from the other runners. Everyone in the stands knew he was going to do it again. The four-minute mile barrier was about to be shattered. When he crossed the finish line, the crowd exploded. People were screaming and jumping up and down. We all went bananas when they announced that Bannister had run another sub-four-minute mile. But while we were all cheering... I happened to look down. I saw Roger Bannister collapse in exhaustion. After crossing the finish line, he just passed out. A first aid team hurried onto the field with a stretcher. They loaded him onto it and quickly carried him off the field. As they were carrying a half-dead Roger Bannister to the emergency room, my, my coach put his hand on my shoulder and said... Tony, you're our 1,500-metre man. I expect you to do that. At that moment, as I saw Bannister's exhausted form disappear under the stands, two things went through my mind. Number one, I could never do that. I liked to run, I was sporty, but I would never be a great miler. I would never run a mile in less than four minutes. This was something else again. There was no way I could do it. I lacked the ability. Second, in addition to lacking the physical ability, I also lacked the will. I would have liked to have been a great runner, but not badly enough to risk dropping dead for old West Philly College. 
I wonder if you feel that when you hear the stories of David Watson and Paul the Apostle in prison. I would love to be like that. I would love to have a faith like that, but there's no way I could ever do it. He goes on. It's the same with living like Jesus. Like you, I lack both the ability and the will to carry it off. There's an absence of the willpower necessary to stick with Christ. There is an inability to do it in our own strength, that which God calls us to do. But, as Paul writes in Philippians, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do that which is his good pleasure. It is God who works within you to will and to do that which is his pleasure. Paul wrote of Jesus as his passion. He wrote of Jesus who changed his perspective. He also wrote of Jesus as the author and perfecter of his faith and our faith. As we shared last week, he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, you're at work in all of our lives, sometimes in ways that are invisible, sometimes in ways which are dramatic and uh, 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 vivid. We pray for all of us today that you would make us aware of your presence in our lives, that you would uh, draw us afresh to ourselves, to yourself and that you would uh, reveal yourself to us as the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would be renewed by you day by day. In the name of Christ, amen.